You're listening to Vernacular Podcast. Hello, welcome to Vernacular Podcast. I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. And this is Season 4, Episode 9. We have a lot lined up for you today. Yeah, if you heard our last episode where we talked about human gene editing, today we are going to talk about plant gene editing in the form of GMOs in contrast to organic farming and organic food. So we are going to talk to Aaron and Abby Hummel in the second segment of this podcast about that. Before we do that, we are bringing back our long-awaited guests from Season 1. That's right. We're going to talk to Astrid and Aaron Ceballos, our guests from season one, who are running a hop farm in Virginia. And it's a pretty cool story. They are doing a really sustainable project there. And we check in with them now that they're in season two of their hop crop, hops crop, whatever I'm trying to say, <laughs> their crop of hops. <laughs> I, think, I think it's singular, but I'm not quite sure. We're I laughing wanna because say... we had a whole discussion about whether that's hop farm or hops farm. Yeah, and from my cur- cursory Google searching, it seems to be singular. But Aaron, Astrid, let us know if we're just completely botching it all. So, so they're going to talk to us about their crop hop before we talk to Abby and Aaron. <laughs> their crop <laughs> the, Their hop crop. I'm sorry. <laughs> I can't get this right. Um, crop unfortunately, when we talked to them, we didn't realize we'd be talking to um, Aaron and Abby on the same episode. Right. And so we didn't get a chance to get their feedback on GMOs versus organic farming. Because, because what it, what, what Aaron is doing, and... Aaron's a scientist who, who works with GMOs and he is... Aaron Hummel. Yeah, he and Abby are both uh, pretty strong advocates for the use of GMOs and they will tell you all about why that is. Uh, and uh, Astrid and Aaron are doing an organic, uh, sustainable, very clearly non-GMO farm. So we wanted to sort of get their perspective about the merits of GMOs and why they're doing an organic, sustainable farm. So they kindly emailed us with their comments for us to read yeah. after their segment. So what we'll do is we will uh, – actually, first we're going to do a lightning round. But after the lightning round, we're going to talk to Astrid and Aaron, and then we're going to talk to Abby and Aaron. Yeah, two Aaron's here. It'll be a little, yeah, a little confusing. confusing. <laughs> um, and everyone's name starts with A, so even more confusing. Wow. But then at the end, the very end, we will read to you uh, a note from um, Aaron, Aaron and Astrid, the hot farmers. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, about GMOs. And their um, perspective on or why they chose to be organic. Right. And we think there's obviously merit in both approaches. Um, yeah, and we want to try to provide a balanced perspective. Yeah. So, and we definitely encourage feedback. Yeah. So, without further ado, lighting round, and then we'll get to the interviews. Sounds great. We're back with Vernacular, and we are going to call one of our contributors, Muriel. Hello? Hi, Muriel. Hello. Hi, guys. <laughs> Hello. All right. We have got you. We're so excited to give you a lightning round. That's right. So welcome, Muriel, to your first lightning round. For our listeners who've listened I'm to the so show before, excited. you'll recognize Muriel. She's one of our contributors, and we wanted to give her a lightning round. So, Muriel... You are a listener of the podcast, so you also probably know the rules, but in case you are rusty on them, I'll review them for you. (laughs) Very simple rules for our lightning round. You will be faced with a series of questions. These questions will make up a test. This is a test. (laughs) And it is pass-fail. Awesome. I'm great at tests. You are. You're a student. Great test taker. Yeah, PhD students are really good at test taking. So, (laughs) uh, yes, this test will consist of the series of questions that will posit either or scenarios to you and you have to answer quickly in a flash of lightning or approximately three seconds <laughs> any enough. questions before we begin oh i'm ready all okay, right let's Ooh, do it she sounds like she's got her game face on sally take it away all right the classic bon appetit question butter or olive oil butter good answer okay muriel you are from michigan but you are a phd student at baylor university in waco texas do you prefer michigan or texas Nice. That is also a good answer. (laughs) All right. Do you prefer Gilmore Girls or Friends? Gilmore Girls. Guys, this is so easy. (laughs) It gets harder. It's progressive. (laughs) A bouquet of freshly sharpened pencils or a thousand yellow daisies? 
Oh, pencils, definitely pencils. <laughs> nice. And just for our listeners, that was way more than a thousand daisies. Right, exactly. Yeah, you guys need to explain this because I don't. I had to understand explain this, this to reference. Zach when I came up with the question, but yeah, you need to explain it to me again as well because right. I still don't understand. Well, I'll explain it for you and our listeners. Okay. A bouquet of freshly sharpened pencils is a reference to You've Got Mail. And A Thousand Yellow Daisies is a reference to Gilmore Girls. She says that there needs to be A Thousand Yellow Daisies when she gets a proposal. The next day, her office is filled with way more, more like a million yellow daisies. Wow. So many. And in what context did the bouquet of freshly sharpened pencils come up and you've got mail? You've got mail. Oh, well, it was fall. And he says he would send her a bouquet of freshly sharpened pencils. Because they're talking about all the things they love about fall. Yeah. Why doesn't he? Because there are strangers who are talking on the internet. Hello, that's the whole <laughs> plot of the movie. Oh, oh, it was when, like, early in he's, there. He's not quite yeah. the the lover of You've Got Mail that, that you and I are. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> Neither is John. It's okay. Okay. <laughs> Got it. Uh, well, we'll move on to food, something I do know something about. Uh, pumpkin spice or apple cinnamon? Apple cinnamon. Oh. Salsa or hummus? Ooh, hummus. Starbucks or caribou coffee? Uh, I have to go with Starbucks. Nice. Candy or chocolate? Mm, candy, I think. That's oh, that's a fail. <laughs> that is definitely a I'm fail. Just like, I'm into fruity things, you know, like a good bag of Sour Patch Kids. Can't really beat it. I mean, I guess if you have to go non-chocolate candy, sour is the way to go. But still. Mm-hmm. It's a travesty to pass up chocolate for just a glob of gelatinous sugar. <laughs> okay, let's move into politics, something that you are rumored to know something about, Muriel, as a PhD uh, candidate in politics. So, your first question on politics, Trump or Hillary? Oh, neither. <laughs> okay. I can't yeah. wait till we get someone I mean, on the whole, lightning like, round no, who actually, actually chooses yeah. one of those. <laughs> I, I will say this. I will say that since one of them is going to win the election – I would rather have it be Clinton. Oh, okay. You're okay. the first one right. to, to choose. Yeah, everyone else has said neither. All right. All right. Yeah. Well, I live in the real world, and in the real world, Donald <laughs> Trump cannot be president. <laughs> All right. Scalia or Alito? Alito. All right. Well, it depends. Scalia is so much more entertaining to read. Scalia talks but about Alito... the aphorisms of a fortune cookie, in his opinions. <laughs> He's funny. Pure applesauce. Right, but I think as a jurist, probably we do. All right. I have to agree with you on that one. Okay, uh, how about this one? Ginsburg or O'Connor? Ginsburg. She's so funny. Yeah, she she is quite the character. I can't wait for her movie or the movie that's coming out about her. Yeah, I'm so excited for that. Um, the first or second Continental Congress? <laughs> that's amazing. Second. Nice. Second. Okay. I'm glad you have an opinion on that. Uh, yeah. Very important. All right. And your final question on politics. We're taking it. We took it way back for the Continental Congress question. We're going to take it way, way back for this one. Aristotle or Plato? Aristotle. Okay. Nice. You have redeemed yeah. yourself from the candy answer. And I deem you have passed this lightning round. Congratulations. Excellent. Yay. Like Thanks for joining us. My baby is crying, so I should go. All right. All right. Um, thanks, though. This was super fun. Thank you. Have a good one. All right. Welcome back to Vernacular. We're here with uh, Astrid and Aaron Savayos, who we talked to in season one of our podcast because they're involved in a really interesting project, which is doing a hops farm in Virginia. This is something that Aaron dreamed up while uh, Astrid was doing grad school in Oxford. And they've since moved to Virginia. They're putting together this hops farm, and they're in season two of the hops crops. And we just wanted to uh, touch base with them again and ask how it's going. So, Astrid and Aaron, welcome back. How's the hops farm going? Season two, that's right. Thanks, Zach and Sally. Good to be back. (laughs) Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, we're excited to get your update. Yeah, season two is going good. It's been uh, even more hot and humid than season one. Oh, no. uh, That's always fun. uh, the hops are just about ready for harvest, and um, we planted uh, about we planted a new hop yard that's just half the size of last year's hop hop yard. So we have uh, one and a half times as many hops as we had last year. Wow! So and what is that like in numbers? So uh, we last year we had 450, and this year we have 
675. Wow, that's like a lot. Yeah. And, and each of these, for uh, just our listeners, they're pretty tall, right? I remember you were telling us before these are uh, on pretty elevated, like, I'm not sure what the technical term is, but they're they're big plants, right? Yeah, they're, yeah, they're on trellises, and um, they grow well. They can grow up to 20 feet tall. So I have 20 foot poles that I sink three feet into the ground, so the trellis goes up 17 feet. Um, all the all the old hops from last year, uh, the hops are perennial, so they come back each year and they get kind of stronger and stronger each year. So the ones from last year, all of them hit the top of the trellis, and then the first year hop plants from the new hop yard kind of. Um, some of them get to the top, some of them don't, you know, they kind of, some take a, a while to get the root systems developed and everything like that. But yeah, the, the second year ones are all 17 plus feet tall. So wow, it's, it's a pretty cool sight to see. And how's the, how's the beer tasting from the hops you've grown so far? Yeah. So I, I, uh, I planted four different kinds of hops last year. This year I planted an additional four types and I have eight, eight total types. Uh, but from last year, I harvested, um, or I kept a, kept a stash for myself of all the different types of varieties that I planted and brewed um, a beer with each of them. And I kept the malt base and the yeast uh, the same. So the only ingredient, ingredient I switched in the recipe was the hops. Ah, so clever. Four, yeah, so let me kind of compare the different hops flavors, uh, see which kinds that I personally like to drink, because uh, I hadn't even you know tried all of them individually before i planted them and so, so were there any that you just didn't like and you were just like oh maybe i shouldn't have grown this one yeah i mean i definitely had my favorites like cascade um is the real popular one to grow here in virginia and it became really clear to me why it's so popular it has like really nice grapefruity citrus type flavor uh, which i which i really like and then uh experimental variety that i grew is called canadian red vine okay. that one's pretty cool because it has kind of cherry berry uh, flavors, oh. um, and it kind of like a, a funky aftertaste, which is pretty cool. And then, um, one, I, I also grow, uh, Chinook and Zeus and the Zeus are okay, but they're, they contribute a lot of bitterness and not much, um, not much of the citrusy kind of flavor that I, that I personally like. They're kind of more p- piney or spicy, okay. which was some people like, but isn't my cup of tea necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. Now, before we hit the record button, you were telling us about tea hops. Can you tell our listeners about those? Yeah, so everything that I planted, all the new hops that I planted this year were, uh, I planted for a brewery. I kind of partnered with a brewery to uh, grow the specific types of hops that they are most interested in brewing with. Uh, it's a new brewery opening up here in Virginia next month. That is so cool. So all of your hops go to them? All of them except for this. Uh, I planted a couple of sections for for Astrid because she requested that I plant some hops that are specifically good for making tea. Oh. So hops make a really good sleepy time tea because they have, I forget the name of the chemical compound, but they have some chemical compound in them that um, is really good for inducing sleep. Oh, that's cool. So they make like a, yeah, like a, a good sleepy time tea. Um, and there's one, this one variety in particular called Tea Maker. Um, (laughs) that, that we found out about. So I planted those and they're supposed to have less of that, like harsh, bitter flavor. That's good in beer, but not necessarily tea. Um, so they're like designed specifically for teas. So I think she's pretty excited about that. That's awesome. So have you tried these yet or this, we're still waiting to harvest them? Yeah. So all, all the, uh, hops, the second year hops are, just about ready for harvest. I actually just started harvesting them last week. Oh, neat. But the new ones uh, that I just planted this year probably won't be ready for another three or four weeks or so. Okay. Now, I think when we talked to you a year ago, uh, you were saying that there's sort of a growing movement to have hop farms in Virginia, but it's not traditionally a place where they've thrived. So how's the climate been for you there? Yeah, so I think this year has been, uh, you know, I think the hottest on record, hottest summer on record <laughs> ever. Uh, or at least since, you know, when they started keeping records in the 1800s, at least where we are. Uh, so the hops like it hot, but not 100 plus degrees hot. Oh, so yeah. they, it's been a little challenging uh, to keep keep everything, keep them all happy uh, with the heat. But luckily it's been raining a lot. So, um, yeah, they're, they're definitely, you know, when I, when I got into this game last year, there were, uh, it had exploded from 16 
uh, hop farms in Virginia the year before to 40 last year. And I think wow. now they're over 80. Oh so, my goodness. Yeah. It's the, the industry is really growing fast, um, which is cool. Most of the farms are, um, at, so at a really smaller scale, even smaller than what I'm doing. Um, but yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely taking off. And, and I know in uh, Northern Virginia, kind of closer to DC, there's a new multi-million dollar hop farm with, um, wow. th- uh, like th- thousands upon thousands of plants that they just put in. Um, so and they have like all the big equipment and everything like that. So it seems to be, it seems that people have found varieties that grow well down here. Um, and so, like I said, I have eight different varieties. Some do better than others. And I think most people down here grow Cascades, which not only people really like the taste of, but they also seem to grow really well. So, so speaking of, of the, the, all the big equipment that, that um, the really big hops farm has, do you have equipment to harvest the hops or how, uh, how does the harvesting process work? I do everything by hand. Wow. Um, yeah, basically myself. Astrid helps, you know, when Sometimes. when she's in the mood. <laughs> when you're not working. <laughs> right, yeah, when she's not yeah, when she's out of work. So um yeah, it's basically, everything's hand picked, everything's tended by hand. I you know, I don't even use any big equipment. I mean the biggest thing I use is just um just the lawnmower to mow between all the different mm. rows of hops, but other than that everything's, you know, done done hundred percent by hand, which is uh which is a nice way to uh, keep in shape without having to uh, go to the gym. <laughs> yeah, seriously. So, and do you do you have any help besides Ostrid? Like, it's just you all the time. Yeah, uh, for the most part, yeah. But um, this summer, actually, we got into the woofing game. So, woofing is uh, stands for Worldwide Organization of Organic Farms or something like that. So, I'm glad yeah. you explained that because it made me think of this Office episode <laughs> yeah. where Ryan, uh, like, Ryan. yeah. yeah. <laughs> I assume that was not what you were talking about. Before they were bought out by the Washington University thing. Public. Uh, no, this is this is the organization for uh, people, mostly young people, mostly twenty-somethings, who um, want to get out into the countryside and work on organic farms, kind of for a short period of time. Okay. So, in exchange for room and board, um, people come out and stay with us and help out on the farm for for a few days. So. I was lucky enough to have uh, a young lady named Irina uh, from New York come out and stay with us for a week, and she helped us out on the farm. And it was nice too because we got to show her around. We went to some wineries and some oh, breweries nice. in the area. Yeah. So it's kind of like you make friends and you have yeah. someone to come and help out. So that's great. Um, yeah. So what's next for you guys? Are you gonna stick around and keep growing the farm, or uh, is this just a chapter in your life that you'll look back on someday? That's that. That's the million dollar question. <laughs> I'm thinking about going to law school, uh, and so you know, if she goes out of state or across the country, we might have to reevaluate the plans. But for now, we're just kind of keeping all options open, keeping the hops happy. So if, uh, <laughs> if the law school plan doesn't doesn't end up going through, you know, we can keep on trucking. Well, maybe if the law school plan does go through, you can just uh, hire a couple of woofers to look after the farm while you're <laughs> right. Going. Yeah. Give them a free place to stay, have the run of the... Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah, my uncle has a farm, and, I mean, he ba- he basically has these brothers who run it for him because he's yeah. a, a doctor on his, you know, during the day, so... <laughs> oh, there's an idea. Yeah, because <laughs> keep this house, you know, they keep our house and property and everything like that. But, well, you know, we'll see, see where the chips fall and yeah. figure everything out. I don't think we're ready to make a definitive statement. Sure, sure. But we're happy for now. Yeah. <laughs> Well, guys, thanks so much for uh, coming on and updating us on how the hops are going. For our listeners, if you want to check out more about what uh, Astrid and Aaron are up to down in Fredericksburg, Virginia, go to heritagehopsva.com. Astrid and Aaron, thanks so much. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having us. Welcome back to Vernacular Podcast. We are now joined by Abby and Aaron Hummel. Guys, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us, Zach. Yeah, we're really excited. Now, uh, a little bit of background here for our listeners. Uh, Abby and Aaron are uh, a pretty cool couple. Uh, Abby is, uh, like Sally, a vastly underpaid mom to uh, two adorable kids. 
Uh, and Aaron is a molecular biologist who works on genetically modified crops. And Abby has written uh, pretty prolifically about these uh, these things, genetically modified organisms. You've heard all about GMOs. So we wanted to bring them onto the show and talk a little bit about these, uh, mostly just to uh, to scare people about GMOs and, and <laughs> spread fear mongering is really the biggest goal yes. of this podcast. So uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff out there. Yeah, exactly. we don't believe about we don't believe in knowledge. We just believe in <laughs> spreading rumors. Right. So uh, yeah, stay away from GMOs. They're all very bad. Um, no, but uh, that's sort of the inverse of of the reality here. We want to talk about what GMOs actually are and sort of cut through a lot of the. Uh, urban legends that you can easily find online and ask you guys why are genetically modified organisms a good thing? You want to take us away, Aaron? Um, They've had a significant benefit on um, modern agriculture uh, and the potential benefit for the future is substantially greater than what we've already seen. And so a couple of the biggest examples of benefits are um, <clears throat> there's there's really three categories. Uh, one is herbicide uh, resistance, another one is insect resistance, and a third one is nutrition. So um, economically, the two most significant um, categories are the first two, the herbicide resistance and the insect resistance. And so I'll just briefly explain each one. The herbicide resistance basically makes uh, the crop itself resistant to uh, effective herbicides. So um, where farmers used to have to take great measures to uh, protect their crop from herbicide, now they can spray the herbicide directly over the crop after it has emerged from the ground and it results in um, substantially better weed control throughout the season. Uh, it, it greatly reduce the, reduces their, their costs. So, so to put um, this in really layman's terms for someone like me, you can basically spray weed be gone all over a crop and the weeds die, but the crop doesn't. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, that's pretty much it. And okay. there's a few different chemicals that... Um, there, there's a few different active ingredients that you can produce crops that are uh, that have resistance to those active ingredients. Um, so in the past, what farmers would have to do is either find a chemical that was that the crop was naturally resistant to, or hand weed, or till, or um, you know spray in ways that the crop was not exposed to the herbicide. So it was less effective and more expensive to do, essentially. Um, Another aspect to this is that the herbicides that are used today are substantially safer to mammals than than a lot of the ones used to be because because now with the uh, herbicide-resistant crops, we can use the very very best stuff that's available. Um, So, for example, glyphosate is the one that... um, a lot of people try to demonize um, as some kind of toxic carcinogen, but it actually interacts with a plant gene that uh, doesn't even exist in mammals, uh, and it affects uh, a pathway that, um, well, an, uh, an enzyme that doesn't exist in mammals. So um, there's really no active target uh, in, in humans or, or any other mammals. And that that makes it very safe in comparison to some of the stuff that we've had in the past. Uh, So then for insect resistance, um, why are you laughing at me? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so I'm laughing because I think that your explanation is really good, but it... I think that it explains to me so much why it's difficult to have these conversations because I'm tracking with you totally. Um, but you're using a lot of like big words, and so I'm giggling because I I understand what's going on, but it's it's tricky for other people, and do you, I think that's probably part of the. No, I I totally hear you because you, do you hear me, Zach? Like yeah. this is part of why these conversations are tough to have with other people, right? Because um, because we're because, not experts. you know we have yeah, and so we have all these awesome things that you know GMO crops can do and great ways that they can be used in agriculture. Um, 
but for people that are like enzymes, what's, I don't remember what that is or, right. or what's a pathway. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, cause it's I, tricky I think, to understand. I'm yeah, trying to I, make this simple. I know, I know. And this is like laborious for Aaron to figure out how to, <laughs> to simplify to it. But at the same time, we <laughs> so need can... you in the room, Aaron, because you know, we're not experts in molecular biology. So <laughs> I yeah. would feel kind of funny just trying to explain it without, without that not background knowledge. Yeah, so I'm laughing because I know how hard you're working to really dumb this down for us. And then I know how hard the rest of us are working to try to track with what's going on. Yeah, sorry. I didn't even realize I was talking about metabolic pathways. <laughs> no, uh, that's okay. That's okay. So uh, basically, to go back to that, glyphosate inhibits a process that is essential for plants uh, that doesn't exist in mammals. So there's really, there's nothing for glyphosate to do in mammals. Uh, in, so in the way, in the way that it's toxic to plants, it's not toxic to mammals basically. And there's other herbicides as well that, uh, have this, have similar efficacy or effectiveness on plants and really very little toxicity to mammals. And so that's one of the significant benefits of uh, herbicide-resistant crops is that they allow farmers to use the best, safest herbicides on um, essentially all their crops. So I want to mention the uh, insect resistance uh, issue because, in my opinion, this has a significant benefit uh, on the environment. Um, so there's these uh, molecular building blocks from bacteria that uh, have insecticidal activity. And again, they target uh, parts of the insect that don't exist in um, animals. Uh, and they do, actually, they don't even exist in most insects. They exist only in some of the pathogenic, sort of some of the insects that are strong pests of uh, crops. And so what the biotech industry has done is cause plants to um, produce these uh, these build, these molecular components from the bacteria. So there's one gene from bacteria that's now expressed in the plants. And so instead of having to spray sort of a semi-broad spectrum insecticide all over their field and kill, you know, the target species and half a dozen other species that are in the field. Uh, now, the only species that are harmed are ones that are actually chewing on the crop. So uh, it's resulted in a lot of increased uh, biodiversity in the insect populations in and around farm fields. Wait, so can we go back a little uh, bit? So are you basically saying yeah. that the the plant is genetically modified to be toxic to only certain pests and specifically the ones that eat it? Yes. Oh. Yes. Whoa. That's so interesting. That's correct. So So then uh, you don't yeah. need to spray fields of, with DDT, not that DDT is used anymore, but you don't need to spray them with massive quantities of pesticides because the plants themselves are pesticides? Uh, yes. Not as much as you used to have to. Okay. And... Yeah, I mean it's it's very very specific. It's not like a general pesticide. It's like a single species or maybe two or three species pe uh, insecticide. You know, it's it's incredibly precise in the uh, in the biological activity that it has. Whereas most uh, you know insecticide sprays are not nearly so precise in what species they kill. Cool. So what's the process to get a plant to be modified like that? Well, um, how long do you guys have? <laughs> give me your best tweet on this. I'm just kidding. Your best tweet. No, like, like a couple uh, minutes. Basically, uh, so you take a DNA sequence from, uh, from wherever, the, wherever you can find a natural uh, – characteristic of something of a biological organism that is useful you can isolate the dna sequence that encodes that characteristic and um, basically optimize it for plants and then insert it into the plant genome and uh, that's 
and then you, that's pretty much it. Then you just have to verify you grow the plant and verify that uh, it does have the uh, characteristic, the new characteristic that you expected. Uh, so that's the process of making it and then the process of actually getting it um, commercialized and, uh, you know, not regulated by the government is pretty substantial and pretty long. It requires about uh, 5 to 15 years, uh, probably 5 to 12 years of, uh, of regulatory tests uh, where you're, you're looking at safety uh, by feeding animals, by uh, comparing the uh, chemical profiles of the modified plant versus its uh, unmodified sibling, uh, and you're, you're doing all kinds of other characterizations of the plant to ensure that it's safe, uh, and all these cost a lot of money, so um, that's why it's kind of an expensive process. Okay, so those were two, the two of three benefits? Is that what yeah. you... Okay, so what's the third one? So the third one is actually the most exciting, I think, um, <clears throat> especially for people that aren't uh, related to farmers. Um, <clears throat> the third one that um, has already been demonstrated is a, a change in or an enhancement in the nutritional benefit of um, certain human foods. Um, the, the first... The first example that uh, that or the biggest example that I will give is golden rice, and so um, basically what happened here is that uh, a couple of professors in Europe identified um, an opportunity to help uh, defeat blindness in um, Eastern Asia. Uh, by fortifying, so there's this this disease, this blindness that occurs in children when they don't get enough uh, vitamin uh, A in their diet. Uh, and so in Eastern Asia, in poor families, you know, rice is like the substantial food. There's many days where that's all they eat. And so this blindness is is, is very prevalent. And so what happened was they, they figured out how to make the rice uh, express this vitamin in, um, in the grains. And so it turned from white, which is the natural color, to golden because now it has the vitamin A. Uh, and so it's actually it's the same reason that carrots are orange because uh, they have lots of vitamin A. Wow, that's and so interesting. And uh, it's not quite the same color, but uh, it's, it's yellow. And so now this rice has, substantially, has substantial amounts of vitamin A. Uh, and so families that, um, you know, still eat rice almost exclusively are more protected from the blindness of, in their children because of this. And so there's other examples, like there's a, a similar fortification of sorghum that has occurred for Africa. Um, and there's some work going on in cassava as well, where uh, they're trying to nutritionally fortify uh, staple crops for, um, especially for, you know, underdeveloped areas where, where that's a substantial amount of people's diets and they don't get enough variety. That, that's an interesting point because uh, it, it seems to me that people who bring up GMOs as something unknown, something that could cause harm to us one day, there's a shorter term, at the, at the very least, there's a short-term benefit that you highlight that yeah. consists of people being fed that would not otherwise have food. So even yeah. if GMOs are bad for you, uh, the worst case scenario is you're basically you know, feeding somebody who would otherwise have nothing. Right. Or, yeah, or not enough. Yeah, right. Yes. yes. I would rather take the uh, increased amount of food. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so that's just kind of one example. But we do hear a lot of horror stories associated with GM crops. And and more and more labels are popping up. Like I go to the grocery store and GMO labels free. will say GMO-free you know, next to no hydrogenated oils or organic. No trans fats. Or no trans fats. And so it's like, oh, okay, Great. I didn't know that was something I'm avoiding, but good to know. That's another thing that I should be looking for as a right. label. And I was just wondering, I mean, what do you all think? Why is there so much fear surrounding 
GM food development and consumption. Do you mean aside from the fact that they cause cancer? <laughs> <laughs> right, and autism well, and right, right. every other Every malady, basically, genetically yeah. modified yeah. foods. Well, I feel like a big part of this is that people, on one hand, don't understand how science works. And so um, I think if you don't understand something, the natural response to that is sort of to, like, back away from it. To fear it, yeah. Um, I mean, like, I hear Aaron talk about this stuff a lot, so I can kind of track with what's going on. But I do, like, I do not get this. I got a B- minus in my very easy college, like, 100 level biology class. This but. is very embarrassing to me, and I didn't find out about <laughs> several years after we, we were, were married. We were already dating, so, That's uh, so funny. I had the resources available to me to do better, <laughs> but I did not. Um, so my brain just does not work this way, and it's just just kind of this big, like, world of these big words that I don't understand, and there is just a lot of fear-mongering out there. And for instance, I bet you that there are plenty of foods. I know that there are food in my pantry right now that says GMO free on it. When in fact, there's plenty of foods have that label on them and there's not actually any GMO food of that type. Like, am I right, right. in saying, Aaron, there's no GMO nuts? Yeah. There's no GMO nuts. But so they just put GMO totally free on there to... Right. Like all peanut butter. So there's like there's like the normal planters can, and there's the the GMO free one that's more expensive, and everyone's like, oh, let me get the GMO free one. (laughs) Right. Um, And even sugar. I mean, sugar has no detectable amounts, uh, no detectable DNA in it uh, after it's purified. Oh wow! But you can get uh, you can get uh, GMO free sugar. Yeah, wow. so that would, is, that would have to chemically be... indistinguishable from <laughs> regular sugar from GMO crops. Oh, but the essence is GMO free. <laughs> yeah. Well, even the word genetically modified organism or GM crop, like I think that is enough to scare people and think that we're, I don't know, that people are feeding us poison. Or so, something. Aaron, we were talking about this before we started the interview. Wasn't Gregor Mendel making like early GMOs when he spliced pea plants together? <laughs> well, to be honest, uh, anybody that breeds uh, plants or animals is kind of uh, is participating in genetic modification right. because yeah. anytime you select one individual over another due to its characteristics uh, and then pass its genes on when you're when uh, over and preferentially over the other, you're you're modifying the genetic. Uh, makeup of the progeny and the the population in the future. Right, that makes sense. So, so I guess what the what the crux of the modern issue is, people take issue with uh, molecular bi- biologists in a lab trying to manipulate DNA. Right. 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 And uh, <clears throat> you know, I I think that uh, a lot of the fear comes from a lack of understanding. Uh, some of the early or a lot of the Early GMO events were using genes from, like, um, you know, bacteria or fish or something and transferring them into plants, which to a scientist is not really uh, any more significant than transferring DNA from one plant to another. But to uh, someone who doesn't know how heredity works, that seems uh, horrendous uh, or just maybe shocking. And so I think that that, I think the whole industry sort of got off on the wrong foot as far as the PR um, effort was concerned, and it just sort of spiraled out of control. And honestly, now a lot of scientists are really frustrated because of it seems like there's uh, the majority of people that are against it are just against it because uh, they are, and they're not really interested in um, being informed, <clears throat> which is unfortunate because... Um, you know, in Europe or in the U.S., uh, really having GMOs or not having GMOs just means that if we have GMOs, we're going to pay quite a bit less at the grocery store than if we don't have GMOs. Uh, but if, but in in countries where food security is a major issue, it could mean the difference between having food and not having enough food. Uh, and so that's where it, it becomes more tragic uh, to continue to, to fight against the, this technology. 
this may be an obvious point, but it seems like society's problems with GMOs is sort of missing the forest for the trees because we're coming, we're emerging from what looks to me like several decades worth of uh, making our foods ever more processed. I was just reading an article in The Atlantic, for example, where James Hamblin, who's one of their senior editors, and he's an MD who writes for The Atlantic, was talking about uh, folic acid or, or folate and how there's a new study out from Johns Hopkins that that has a uh, possible link between uh, excess levels of folate in a pregnant woman and um, her uh, child's uh, propensity to develop autism. And th- that conversation is sort of beside the point. But what he was saying was the story of folic acid in foods is an interesting one because folic acid is very prevalent in raw produce. But uh, several decades ago, when raw produce started to come off the shelves and processed food started going on, uh, the processed food had stripped out the folic acid from the um, from the product, requiring people yeah. to supplement. Right, requiring people right. to supplement, or requiring the U.S. Um, uh, the, the FDA to require basically enriched yeah, enriched too. folic acid to be re-added to the food. So um, it's sort of it's sort of strange to me that people might take issue with this uh, this issue version of processing yeah. food. Yeah, this version of processing foods yeah. when we've had decades of stuff that, in my mind, is way way worse. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think I, it, I mean, I I mean GMOs kind of come at a time when, yeah, when processed foods are going out of style, which is, I mean, unfortunate, I guess, because then it's just kind of lumping GMOs with all processed foods, right? And 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 pitting it against the natural organic foods, and so there's no, there's there it seems like there's little conversation about well, are G, what what how does how do GMOs differ from from your you know boxed macaroni and cheese, <laughs> and yeah. And maybe they have more in common with with organic and natural right. foods than you think. Right. Yeah. I mean, I really think the reason that these get pitted against each other is that um, the USDA organic label. So anyone who's buying or, you know, anyone who's buying organic food in the U.S., um, if it's at the grocery store and it has that sticker, um, that means that it is non-GMO. So the USDA just has this program and there's like certain farming practices that you know you use and then you can apply and get this label on your food if you're the farmer um and gmo crops are excluded from that and so they're so that has kind of placed like organic food in opposition to genetically modified food even though really i think there's a lot that could be gained from combining them um there's a really great ted talk um if anybody wants to check it out from pamela ronald Um, And I can send you guys a link to that, too. But it's called The Case for Engineering Our Food. Um, And she just has a lot of really good information about how um, what good things can come when, you know, this when these natural foods, organic foods, really what we just mean is like fresh vegetables from the ground or something like that. Um, When that is, you know, when we have that stuff and we have GMOs, like what the combination of that is really good. I feel like I'm rambling a little yeah, bit. Yeah, why there, do but... they need to be pitted against each other? Yeah, why can't exactly. we have both? Yeah. I mean, you know, a lot of the people in the organic and natural foods camp uh, can sympathize or do sympathize strongly with uh, environmental protection. And, you know, a couple of the items I cited earlier, uh, the characteristics of some GMOs actually do result in uh, benefits to the environment so um, and also reduced application of chemicals on the crops so you know I, in my opinion like Pam Ronald says they're uh, they really they're complementary yeah so speaking of the environmental effects um, in just in my cursory reading on this subject like preparing for the podcast a lot of people kind of come back against GMO advocates and say that we can't be sure of the safety and the long-term health or environmental effects of GM crops because we need more regulation and testing to happen before we can produce and market those foods widely. And they say, you know, that the lack of evidence, the, la- the lack of evidence for negative effects is not proof that they're safe. What, I mean, what would you say to that? Um, I mean, <laughs> what kind of proof do you what kind of proof is reasonable? If you can't find any evidence that they are unsafe, then, you know, it's just a conspiracy theory. Yeah. Uh, I mean, honestly, uh, since 1996, uh, 1996 is the first year that genetically modified crops were commercialized. So since then, 
uh, actually shortly after that year, uh, the amount of GMOs in corn and soybean production uh, in most countries is extremely high. Uh, in the U.S., it's over 90% or 85% of the total acres are GMO. And, you know, the U.S. exports food all over the world. There have been literally probably billions of people, certainly hundreds of millions of people that have eaten GMO foods. And there's not a single documented case of some negative reaction to them, um, which makes sense to me because all it is is just a slightly different DNA code in in the cells that people are consuming. And, you know, our bodies, our digestive process breaks down DNA uh, just along with all the other stuff in the cells. So uh, if that's not a good safety record, I don't know what is. So are you saying that, that over 90% of the consumed produce in America is GMO? No. Uh, I'm saying that 90% of the soybean, approximately 90% of the soybeans produced in the U.S. and corn, like field corn produced in the U.S. is GMO, which means that, uh, you know, it goes into a lot of animal feed and also into a lot of chips and other processed foods. Right. Soybean oil. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, There's a a lot fewer vegetable crops and fruit crops have been genetically modified. Gotcha. Why is that? Is it harder to to modify those types of foods? No, it's pretty much because of uh, consumer resistance. resistance. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, it's, it's it's interesting when you bring up the stat about soy and corn. I don't know what percentage of um, soybean oil, for example, used in American food is originating in GMOs, but you could find that data. I'm sure it's out there. And then someone could use that to say, you know, that 30% of all uh, all cancer patients in the U.S. last year consumed GMOs in the last in the in the last year. You know what I mean? And so mm-hmm. you can yeah. you can sort of extrapolate the data very very poorly and make <clears throat> a make a very bad case for why GMOs cause any sort of malady. Right. Yeah. And there have been a number of absolutely horrible studies like that that are not really scientifically valid at all. Right. Well, and something that I think is interesting is that there's this. Um, an article from NPR that talks about how all sweet potatoes are actually um, genetically modified by nature. So scientists figured out that sweet potatoes actually have a little bit of bacterial DNA in them. So um, basically, like it's nature's GMO. And I mean, I ate sweet potatoes tonight for dinner with the kids. Um, And I, I don't think anybody is you know, saying, oh, we need to be really cautious about sweet potatoes now that this research came out. So sweet potatoes are our staple in this house, by the way. Yeah, we, have we the, eat a lot. We have so many sweet potatoes. <laughs> but I mean, so, so that sounds like, um, Aaron, what you were saying about the bacteria that you can insert into crops to make them basically natural pesticides. So nature did this with sweet potatoes inherently? Yeah. Um, that's pretty cool. Actually, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, so the study looked at uh, wild relatives of sweet potato and domesticated varieties, and basically their conclusion was that it probably happened sometime during the domestication process. Oh, wow. So this is recent. uh, No, it's, well, uh, it depends on what you define as recent, but sweet potato is one of the most ancient crops. Oh, okay. I'm showing my ignorance of crops. I didn't know that. (laughs) Like sweet potatoes, they've just been, you know, at the grocery stores for the past... 10 years. <laughs> I was thinking like the last thousand years, but. Uh, it's older than that. Okay. They, they estimate it's older than that. But cool. Uh, the point is that they think maybe uh, or probably that this bacterial gene produced some kind of uh, favorable characteristics, such as maybe flavor or something, that uh, was better than all of the other plants that didn't have it. And so the the ancestral farmers actually chose that one preferentially because of it. So the other one was the bitter potato. And they were like, yeah, the sweet potato tastes a lot better. (laughs) Possibly, yes. (laughs) So is all of this, do you think this call for more regulation and testing just more a stalling technique because because of fear rather than grounded in an actual need for more regulation and testing of GM crops? Uh, Yes. It's a it's a easy it's a it comes across as less uh, 
are more flexible. They say we need more testing when really we've had uh, 20 years of the most intense testing in the food industry. I mean, uh, it's just like unprecedented scrutiny. Uh, and, you know, to say that we need more testing without any kind of actual uh, plan for what testing is needed and when, what the timeline would be is it's just a stall tactic that's really intended to, you know, be a veto by delay, basically. Well, yeah. Let me ask. Let me ask this of you guys. Uh, it's a two-part question here. Last week uh, on our podcast, we hosted a contributor roundtable where we talked about the use of CRISPR-Cas9 for editing the human genome. And uh, Aaron, I know that in your postdoc, you worked with this technique, CRISPR-Cas9, which is, as I understand it, a novel and very precise way of editing DNA. So wondering what uh, what promise this holds for um, genetically modified organisms. And then the second part of my question is really kind of a philosophical one. Uh, the defense that you um, have outlined for GMOs involves their uh, improved herbicide, pesticide, and nutritional profile capabilities, basically. So do you think that the case for GMOs is one that is circumstantial based on the fact that it's hard to grow crops that are not GMO? Or do you think that GMO crops are inherently a good thing uh, and independent of the circumstances that dictate their use, they should be used and pursued? Let me start with the second question first. Sure. So the I think that uh, GMOs are unequivocally a good thing, um, or at least uh, in, in general they are unequivocally a good thing, and it is not circumstantial uh, that they have benefited agriculture. So I'll give one example. Um, in, I don't know, about 10 years ago, uh, a major uh, crop company released a uh, glyphosate-tolerant sugar beet uh Variety. It was the first genetically modified sugar beet uh, ever commercialized, and um, in once in a single year, uh, farmers went from no GMO sugar beet to uh, over. I think it was about eighty or ninety percent of the sh of the farmers growing that GMO sugar beet, and it stayed that way ever since. It's been over ninety percent every year since then. Uh, and the reason is because it was such a drastic um, benefit to their efficiency and therefore the cost of the sugar that they could produce, the, the lower cost of the sugar, that uh, they just, you know, jumped on it and never looked back. And there's a lot of other examples. There's the papaya industry in Hawaii was saved uh, from a viral disease by one of the first genetic modification um, events in the world. Um, and basically, if that hadn't, had not been, if that technology had not been applied in Hawaii, there would be no papaya industry in Hawaii. Wow. Uh, and then, you know, there's more examples as well where, uh, where GMOs have saved uh, certain areas of farming from substantial crises um, and really saved the, the production of certain crops in those areas. And, you know, there would be a lot more examples, and in the future there would be more examples if, if it wasn't so expensive and uh, slow to produce them. <clears throat> Abby, so, what do you think? <clears throat> sorry. <laughs> no, that's fine. Um <clears throat> Well, obviously, um, I'm really uh, excited about the work that Erin is doing because um, there's so much, uh, so much potential for good. So I would agree that GMOs are doing a lot of good, and I'm really happy to see. I'm really happy to see that happening. Um, what was the other part of the question? <laughs> uh, I was asking about CRISPR-Cas9 and its its application. I mean, we've talked about it on the podcast in the context of human gene editing, but I think that's substantially different from, from <laughs> yeah, plant modification. I think you could you could say that. I mean, we 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 talked about it and and people came down on various sides in our roundtable, but I think you could come down against CRISPR-Cas9 for use in human gene editing, but at the same time see its value in genetically modified crops. 
Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Because it's just, it's a technology. It's like a technological process. Um, you know, like the iPhone that I use every day. Um, my iPhone could be used for good or for evil. And it's the same, you know, with CRISPR-Cas9 that you could use really any technology for good purposes or, you know, not good purposes. So the stuff that's happening with crops is really, really phenomenal. So I'm really excited about that. Um, and I think that you can, I think you can be in favor of CRISPR-Cas9 and other, um, you know, processes for making GMO crops and still, um, you know, have extremely strong reservations about human gene editing, which I hold. Um, so you can say yes to the crops and no to the human embryos. Yeah. Well, thanks, you guys, for coming on our show and talking about all of this and just starting the ball rolling and having this conversation and trying to spread knowledge and not fear. <laughs> uh, and check, check out my website, uh, stopgmosnow.com. <laughs> thanks, Zach. <laughs> Well, thanks for having us, guys. We're happy to chat with you. Man, what a great topic and fascinating conversation from both of our sets of guests today. Yeah, this was a really fun episode, but I feel like I'm largely very underqualified to talk about all of these things. So. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, we mentioned at the beginning of this episode that we were going to read to you something that Astrid and Aaron had sent us about GMOs and their choice to pursue a sustainable organic farm. And I'm going to let Sally take it away. All right. So Astrid and Aaron mentioned that they they don't know a ton about GMOs. And so um, they're hesitant to take a super Much like us, strong in fact. stand. <laughs> yeah. um, but from what they do know, they they don't seem to they don't have a major problem with right. with GMOs per se. Um However, and here I'm quoting, I do have concerns about some of the side effects associated with GMOs. For instance, one of the touted benefits of GMOs is that they reduce the need for traditional pesticides. While this seems to be true for insecticides, it turns out that over time, a GMO's enhanced herbicide tolerance actually compels farmers to use more glyphosate, commonly known as Roundup weed killer. And then, so they would use more glyphosate than they'd use on a traditional crop. This happens because the weeds evolve and they develop a resistance they acquire to glyphosate immunity, basically. as they're increasing, increasingly exposed to it, right? And after a few growing seasons, it requires more and more of this Roundup to be effective. He, he quotes researchers at Iowa State who say, for both soybean and maize, glyphosate-tolerant adopters used increasingly more herbicides relative to non-adopters, whereas adopters of insect-resistant maize used increasingly less insecticides. The estimated pattern of change in herbicide use over time is consistent with the emergence of glyphosate weed resistance, unquote. And then back to Aaron and Ostrid, this is a problem because the International Agency for Research on Cancer concluded that glyphosate is, quote, probably carcinogenic. So basically there's there's research here that suggests that it's it's not exactly the GMOs themselves, but it's the the chemicals that are used alongside of the GMOs that right. are are that could potentially cause cancer. So back to Ostrid and Aaron, he says, if the choice is between starvation or extreme poverty, and increased exposure to carcinogens, as it looks to be for many people in the developing world, I'd probably take the increased exposure. And that's what actually we were just talking about with Evan Aaron, that even if there are side effects to these that are unpleasant, you know, what does that matter if we're actually feeding people who would otherwise have no food? Right, right. And and Ostrid mentioned in a part that I didn't read that they had heard a, a, a podcast from Planet Money um, that talked about how these eggplant farmers in India and Bangladesh were using GMO seeds to help radically increase their yield in traditionally inhospitable areas. So, so that's what um, they're referring to. But basically, if that's the choice, then you'd probably choose to possibly get cancer rather than right. to die of starvation. Right. Um, so, and then back to their back to their comments. Still, this seems to be a less than optimal situation. What we think we really need is more rigorous, independently funded scientific research on GMOs and their consequences. In the meantime, we're just thankful that we are privileged enough to avoid these risks by being able to afford organic foods and grow organic hops. Hear, hear. Well said. Uh, and on this independently funded point, this is actually a really important one. There was a New York Times piece just published recently 
uh, and I don't know if an expose is the right word because it was talking about something that happened in the 60s and 70s, but the article was talking about how uh, sugar manufacturers and what's basically the sugar industry paid for research and specific research to be done with specific results to be published that basically made saturated fats the culprits in heart disease and shifted the attention away from sugar, even though there is evidence saying that sugar is actually one of the causes or, or can be a contributing cause to heart disease. Wow. So Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. yeah. So if people have a dog in the race, then maybe they shouldn't be funding that research. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, Oh, and I just want to add this one other part from Ostrich and Aaron. He kind of sums up their position. Organic makes sense for us because we're lucky enough to have a different option set. Increased risk of cancer tomorrow or pay slightly more today. Since cancer seems to be one of the most traumatic experiences an American individual or family can endure, even if the risk, even if the increase in risk is minuscule, the choice for us is an easy one. And I just think he makes a good point. They they have a small farm. They have this option of paying more. And for them, the choice is a clear one. But if we're talking about starving people in a third world country. Then the choice is also a clear then one. Then the choice is, I mean, it's, it seems to me, to us anyways right. that the choice right. is a clear one. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, we want to know your thoughts. So please reach out to us and let us know what you think of the conversations we've had with Abby and Aaron and... Astrid and Aaron. Uh, <laughs> and you thanks can... to those four for waiting in on a very yes, definitely very difficult subject. If you want to reach out to us and give us your thoughts, you can do that in one of several ways. You can find us on Twitter at VernacularPod or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash VernacularPodcast. You can email us at Zach and Sally at VernacularPodcast.com. You can leave a comment on any one of our blogs on the website as well, or you can head to our blog, blog.VernacularPodcast.com and leave a comment there. Yeah, you can see the accompanying blog post to this episode that includes a bunch of links, including a link to Ostrich Aaron's farm where you can actually buy some of their produce. That's right. And also links to a ton of different articles on GMOs. So please check that out, and we will see you next time. For Vernacular Podcast, I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. Have a great week. Feeling better than ever. Feeling better than ever. When I'm by your side.